You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Take your Bibles out and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second, some of you are going to have to go to the table of contents and find that chapter. Um, if you can find Samuel, you can find Kings, hang a right, and you can go to Chronicles. First, second, Samuel, first, second, Kings, first, second, Chronicles. We're in chapter 20. Uh, we kicked off a summer series last week. If you were here, you'll know that. Um, but what I did last week is what I would call a pre-series message because this series throughout the summer will be a series on prayer. But what I did last week in sort of the kickoff of it was I spent more time talking about soul care and soul rest more than anything else. Now, obviously, prayer is a key element of finding rest and, and, and restoration for our souls. But I began that way last week because... I don't want this to simply be another series on prayer where you're just feeling like, man, I just need to pray more, although that's a good thing. But I don't want you to simply think prayer is just about me throwing up some requests, uh, me just kind of getting that checklist out of the way, where prayer for so many people tied to that feels like an obligation instead of an opportunity feel something we got to do instead of something we get to do. And so I want to I be about that. And so that's why we're doing this series, because I don't want us to pray simply more, but I want to draw closer to Jesus more through prayer and other things as, as we go through this series that you will see. So with that in mind, direct your eyes to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. First off, before we get into it, what is 2 Chronicles? Well, the simple answer is it's a book that chronicles stuff. That's the answer. It's a book that chronicles specifically the, the lives of the kings of Judah from the time of Solomon, Solomon, the son of David, wise king. It's a recording, a chronicling of the lives of the king of Judah from Solomon up until they were taken into captivity by Babylon. Um, up until this time, when I say specifically the kings of Judah, in this point in history, in the, uh, the nation of Israel's history, the 12 tribes of Israel, who came out of the, 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 the tyranny of Egypt, were set free, and, and they moved towards becoming a nation, they were made up of 12 tribes. But at this point, when we drop into Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, Chronicles especially, the nation had divided. And 10 of those 12 tribes, they came together to form a northern nation called Israel. The two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, came together and they formed the southern kingdom of Judah. And so what this passage is about, or 2 Chronicles specifically, it's a focus on the kings of Judah living in Jerusalem and focusing on how those kings who were faithful met with success. And those kings of Judah that were unfaithful, well, they found, uh, faced the consequences of, of their decisions. 
And as we drop into chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, we meet a king named Jehoshaphat. Great name. What does it mean? Well, you can probably figure out the first part. It means Jehovah, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah or the Lord is judge. All you have to know about Jehoshaphat for the sake of today is that he was one of the good kings. Not perfect, certainly. He made some gaffes. He had his stumbles and starts and so forth. But overall, he was faithful to the Lord. And like I said, not all of them were, but he was. He took after the example of his father Asa, perhaps heard of him, where we read in 2 Chronicles 14.2 that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat followed the example of, of Asa. And as you go forward a couple chapters from that one, chapter 14, you can read this behind me. We read this about Jehoshaphat in chapter 17. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. David, his lineage, David the great king, not his earthly father, but his forefather. He did not seek the Baals. Baals were false gods, but he sought the God of his father Asa and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had lost their way. They had gone off the rails already. So he's a good guy. But he's got a problem. As we drop into our text, let me read along with you the first four verses of chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came, to seek the Lord. Just stop there. So what's going on? Well, put your eyes back in the text and just notice how verse 1 begins. Our passage begins with the words, after this. After what? Well, after chapter 19. <laughs> but what's specifically about chapter 19? Well, in chapter 19, King Jehoshaphat had just taken care of some things. Like I said, he's a good guy. In fact, there are are things that are going on that he needed to, uh, to address. And so what Jehoshaphat did was he raised up judges and he raised up Levites and he raised up priests and he said to them, just listen to what he said, whatever you do, do it in faithfulness and reverence to the Lord. For whatever you do, you do for the Lord. Like I said, good guy, he's a good king. And after this, as we get to chapter 20, all things were easy peasy. Right? Not at all. What we see in verse 1 is after this, things were anything but. But do you ever feel like it should be that way, though? Like, honestly. Like, after you're faithful, and good, and, and you do things that honor the Lord, 
and you even tell people about the Lord and how they should live for the Lord, like you do all of those things, don't you feel, honestly, at times where you think that your tomorrow should be great? You know what I mean? Like you almost feel entitled to it. Like I did this faithfully. So when I wake up tomorrow, it should be great. Well, as we go to our text, after this uh, didn't leave, lead to a great tomorrow for Jehoshaphat, what do we see instead? Well, three kingdoms, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meonites, they all allied against Judah. Uh, what, what is this uh, geographically speaking? Well, picture Judah being British Columbia, okay? And instead of the, Medi- uh, the Pacific to the west, we have the Mediterranean to the west, and, and all of a sudden, one day, godless, the godless Northwest Territories, right? And they are. We all know that. And the very godless Alberta, province of Alberta, very, very godless. And the decrepit state of Washington, right? They all come together. Those three godless groups of people come together, and they're going to wage war on godly British Columbia right? Because we are, every single one of us, right? Faithfully following the Lord. That's what's going on in our passage. That's verses one to four. It's daunting. But when Jehoshaphat hears the report, he's fearless, right? No, again, it says in verse three that he was afraid. You have to love the honesty of this. So what does he do? He's afraid. He hears what's going on. What does he do? Well, does he run for his life? Well, no, he doesn't do that. Does he send out people to see if they can get some sort of peace agreement together with the warring factions? Maybe he can give them some cash, some silver, some gold, keep them away. Does he do that? No. Does he hide behind locked doors? Does he surround himself with armed guards? No again. What he does instead, as you look back at verse 3, is he set his face to seek the Lord. What does that mean? Well, to set your face is uh, it's, it's a figure of speech that refers to determination and undivided attention. To set your face is to resolve in your spirit to draw close to God. To set your face speaks of fortitude. Today we would, we would talk about it as being locked in. You know what I mean? Like lasered in. Like no distractions. Nothing's going to get in your way. I am setting my face right now to seek the Lord, it's drawing close with intensity. We, we do this in prayer when we come to God with passion and longing, and we don't merely toss up requests. That's setting our face to the Lord. We do this in worship when we don't only sing songs, but in body, soul, mind, and strength, we glorify God. We, we do this when we go to the Word, when we go to the Word and don't quickly just read a couple of chapters, knock it off, but we meditate in it, 
and we dwell on it, and we do it. And, and we do this when fasting and, and give up food and, and allow the hunger that we feel physically to move us to a greater hunger of God in our soul. In verse 3, if you go back to it, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat called for a nationwide fast. What, what is fasting? Well, fasting is a sign of humility. Uh, it's a sign of dependence. Uh, it's a tangible cry of the heart for more of God. Hunger and hungering and being satisfied in God alone is a common theme that weaves its way throughout the scriptures. Jesus said very famously in the Sermon on the Mount in what are known as the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are many examples of fasting in the Bible, some physical depictions of repentance. You read about that in Joel chapter 2. Sort of a sackcloth and ashes time. Some, a cry for favor. If you've ever read the story of Esther, before she goes in to see the king, she calls for a three-day national fast for favor. Some fasts are demonstrations of the reality that Jesus isn't here, and we groan for him. Jesus talked about this in several places when he was asked, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting? He said, because it's a wedding going on right now. The groom's here. And he's calling for his bride. But a time is coming when you will fast, when the groom's taken away, and you will groan. Then you will fast. Jesus assumed that Christians would fast. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 6, talks about how, how to be a Christian and not fast would be like being a Christian who doesn't pray and doesn't give. He assumed we, we would in a very human form, but I think there's a spiritual truth to this and reality, fasting gets God's attention. This call to assemble and seek the Lord and fast leads to Jehoshaphat's prayer in verses 5 to 9. Let's take a look at it. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. That's the temple that was built by Solomon before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our Lord, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Uh, so much here. 
but for the sake of our time this morning, let me just highlight a few things that jump out from this prayer. The first thing to notice is that it's a, a corporate prayer. I know that seems obvious, but it's a corporate prayer, just as the fast was. When Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, excuse me, starts to pray, he prays, as we see in verse 5, in the assembly. I love this. For as, as important as our personal and secret prayer life is, and it's important, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to go into secret places, so the God of secrets will see us and reward us. But as important as our secret prayer life is, so too is our corporate prayer. The early church was devoted to this. We see it all the way through the book of Acts. It just weaves its way again and again through that story. In Acts chapter 1, we read that those waiting in Jerusalem in one accord were devoting themselves to pray together. When, when Peter was arrested, and thrown into jail in Acts chapter 12, we read there that many were gathered together and were praying. It's true that Jesus got away often to pray in quiet and desolate places, but he also prayed publicly. He prayed in front of thousands to the point where people heard him pray like the disciples, and they said to Jesus, would you teach us to pray? I'm going to pray like that. So it's a corporate prayer, but tied to that, it's also a public prayer. Jehoshaphat stood in front of the assembly, and he prayed, and his prayer became the nation's prayer. And this will become very important to us when we start looking specifically at what he prayed in, in just a moment. But first, also notice that it is, it is a God-centered prayer. God is all over this prayer. This prayer is God-focused, it's God-infused, and in it, Jehoshaphat reminds God, and I use that language purposely because he does, he reminds God about three things before ever getting to the request. He's not even close to the request yet. What are the three things that he reminds God of? Well, first, he reminds God of who he is. In verse 6, he addresses his prayer to the God of our fathers, forefathers. But in this address, he's implying, I think, I believe, that you took care of them and we're their children. There are promises that you gave to them that are to be true of us. He also reminds God that he is God in heaven. In fact, as you look back to verse 6, he says or asks, are you not God in heaven? As if God had somehow forgotten. He also reminds God that he rules over all the kingdoms of the nations, some of whom, by the way, God, are about to drive us out. But you rule over them. And at the end of verse 6, he reminds God that he is powerful and mighty and nobody can stand against him. Why is Jehoshaphat doing any of this? Why is he telling God any of this? Was God forgetting this? Losing his mind? I'm talking like a fool. Obviously not. 
What this was, remember, public corporate prayer, was a verbal reminder, public reminder, corporate reminder to, to Josh, Jehoshaphat and to the people of who God is and the greatness of him. Jehoshaphat was simply claiming and declaring what he knew to be true of God. And and I would argue that this is really good leadership in the face of what this nation was going through. But he's not done because secondly, he also reminds God of what he has done. Take a look at verse 7. I know I've read it. Let's read it one more time. Jehoshaphat says there or prays there, did you not? Our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever, forever, God, to the descendants of Abraham, who, by the way, God, your friend. And then he adds in verse 8, God, when, when the people entered this land, you know what they did? They built a temple, a house for you, for the glory of your name. So you drove them out, and this is what they've done. Do I need to remind you of that? And then thirdly, in verse 9, he reminds God of his promise. What promise? Well, the promise that if disaster comes, and we gather together before you in this place, we come together, you will hear us, and you'll save us. That promise in verse 9 recorded there shows up Several different, in several different places in the story of, of the people of God in the Old Testament. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page. What does Jehoshaphat say about God in this prayer? Well, he reminds God and himself and the people of who God is, what he's done, and the promises he's given. Do you know what is required to pray a prayer like this? You got to know who God is. You got to know what God has done. And you got to know his promises to you. This is why a devotion to prayer and the word are so vital. This is why the ministry of the word and prayer are so intertwined. Because nothing adds vibrancy to our prayer life more than a knowledge of God. Who he is, what he's done, and his promises to us as revealed in his word. It's the word that is to guide us and inform our prayers. It's the written word of God. What he's given us that gives us courage when we pray. That gives us assurance when we pray. It's it's God's word to us that reveals who he is, what he's done, what he's promises, what he's promised to us that allows us to know with great assurance that we're praying in his will. That's what Jehoshaphat is doing here. This is a God-saturated, scripture-saturated prayer. It focuses on God as he has revealed himself in his word. You see, here's the opposite in what takes place. If we fill our prayers with the greatness of our problems, we will shrink our faith. 
and be overwhelmed with fear. But if we fill our prayers with the greatness of our God and how he has worked down through, the his, through history, we will stimulate our faith. We'll grow our faith. Jehoshaphat doesn't get to his problems first. We haven't even arrived at them yet. He gets to God first. Uh, there's a, a writer named Stephen Cole. This is what he says in connection with what's going on here. God delights to answer believing prayers where we put our finger on the promises and truth in his word and ask him to make it so in our case, which is what he's doing. So Jehoshaphat finally gets to the issue at hand in verses 10 and 11. Let's read it together. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, look, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Stop there now. Little background, real quickly. People of God come out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Moses doesn't go in. Joshua takes them in. When they go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, they're given a direction by God through Joshua. Get rid of everybody. Drive the nations that exist here now out with the exception of three of them. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meonites from Mount Seir. And what did they do? Well, they obeyed God. They were obedient to what he said. And what reward did they get for their obedience? Those three nations were about to drive them out. And what Jehoshaphat says is, God, your possession, this land that is yours, that you gave us to inherit, is going to be taken away by the people that you, God, told us to drive out. All of this finally leads to his ask in verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Again, I love the honesty. In, in verse 3, we read there that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Here we, here we read that, that he declares they're powerless. We, we can't battle this. And, and not only that, we don't know what to do. And, and I, I'll just remind you, he said this out loud. The king said this out loud publicly in front of the whole nation, which reveals something else about this prayer. It was a humble prayer. Now, some I know, um, perhaps you're trainers of leaders and you work with businesses or corporations or what have you, teams and the like, you, you may say, well, you know what? I think this is a bad idea. I don't think a leader should ever do something like this publicly and, and maybe in certain contexts, you shouldn't, but I think it's okay when it follows a prayer like Jehoshaphat's. He, he had just prayed and reminded the assembly that they may be afraid. 
but God is on their side. And they may be powerless, but nothing can stand against God. And they may not know what to do, but their God is in heaven and rules over all the kingdoms of the nation. You know he still does, right? Trudeau doesn't. Biden doesn't. Zelensky doesn't. Putin doesn't. Xi Jinping doesn't. They rage and they fight for new territory and God laughs. And when God kicks back at the end of the night, he puts his feet up on the world and uses it as his footstool. Remember, God rules over all the kingdoms of the nations. He is in charge. He is in charge. So there's the ask. Verses 13 to 30, it's a lengthier section, record God's response. And, and like I said, I know it's a lengthier one, but let me read the response of God and the response uh, of the people. Verse 13 begins, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of, of the valley. Cast uh, valley east of the wilderness of uh, Jeru. Uh, Jer Jeruel, excuse me, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the uh, Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Love that. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing... <laughs> to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, notice that word went, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah. 
so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting themselves to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah, verse 24, came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They they were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of uh, Barak, and there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barak to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. A passage that begins with fear ends with rest because the people of God set their face to seek God. I mean, what I just read is absolutely great. I know I just read it. Really quick flyover to highlight a couple of things. First, as the nation was gathered in prayer, the Spirit of God came upon a prophet who encouraged the assembly not to fear and assured them that God would undertake for them in battle without them fighting at all. This, just so you know, is not God's regular MO. He does this once in a while, but this is not regular. And and when they heard this word through the prophet, everyone fell down and worshiped and then stood up and sang loud praises, which is a very, very appropriate response. Then, Based on the prophet's word from God, the people got up early the next morning and they marched out. Notice, they got up early. They didn't wait around. They got up early the next morning. They marched out to the battlefield. Who were they led by? A choir. Write this in the margins of your Bible if you, if you like taking notes. This is nuts. Just write it down. This is nuts. Unless... They had great belief in God's word to them. God was good on his word and caused the enemy armies to turn against each other so that all Judah had to do was collect the spoils of war and celebrate the victory, the end. With the few minutes that I have remaining, a couple of things to point out first two key elements for us from this part of the event. Number one, the the promise given through the prophet was one thing. Believing and acting on it was another thing altogether. See, the singers, and what Jehoshaphat told them to do, the, the singers 
were staking their very lives on the truthfulness from the Word of God. Well, I mean, like I said, what they did was crazy. It was nuts. You send out a, a choir in front of the army, not armed, singing like, here we come. Here we come. To a, to a, a raging allied group of three who want to drive you at the very least, perhaps annihilate you at, at best. But that's how they went out on this seemingly crazy mission. But what did Jehoshaphat do to encourage the people? Look at verse 20, the second part of it. He said, as they went out, believe in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Believe in God and believe in his word, and you will succeed. And they did. And it moved them to get up first thing and march and sing. Do you know we have the same marching orders? Like this is as true for us as it was for them. Every day we get up in the morning and we march out. We're told, believe in God. And believe in his word. A second element to see in this part of the event is that reliance on God is always rewarded. God never fails those who trust him and obey his word. Never. And that's not to say that he delivers everyone who trusts him from suffering or even death. We know that not to be true. The the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11, we always talk about the front end of those famous individuals who by faith saw this happen, but the last part of Hebrews 11 are those unnamed individuals that the writer of Hebrews says the world was not even worthy of, who lived by faith and lost their heads, lived in caves in the ground. And so that, that we know is not true. That it's always going to be met this way, but what we need to be reminded of is that this earthly life isn't the final chapter. And, and all who suffer loss for Jesus, who deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him will be rewarded for their faithfulness. Just as Israel was rewarded literally by the spoils of victory, so will we in ways that we can't even think or imagine. We won't have the ability to carry it. As we move to respond, a few takeaways of application or reminder for all of us. The first... A recognition of our great need. They had a great need. A recognition of our great need, whatever that need is. And I know we have needs in here. I know it always doesn't, or it doesn't often lead to coming down for prayer or putting in prayer requests. But you hear through the grapevine of this going on, or this going on, or this going on. I know many of us have great needs. Whatever those needs are should drive us to prayer. 
And a recognition of our great God should direct our prayers. Our prayers should be God-centered, God-infused. Who he is, his promises, what he has done. And not merely just filled with our problems. So driven to prayer and driven to recognition of our great God. A second takeaway. Reliance on our great God should follow our prayers. And reliance on God means being obedient to his word. Even in those times where it just seems so nuts in comparison to the culture around us. But I say this because belief is not just intellectual assent. Where we say, I believe, but don't act on it. That's not saving belief. That's not saving faith. That's not trusting God and his promises. Saving faith is always obedient faith. Third, of four, in this deliverance event, we are to see the picture, a picture of our salvation. This is the gospel. Believe it or not, 2 Chronicles 20 is the gospel. We have enemies, right? Do we have enemies? They have three, so do we. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and our enemies oppose us. And in our own strength, we are powerless against them. And fear, when we recognize that great need, fear is the right response. So is a a feeling of hopelessness. So how does salvation come then? Well, God does it all. Just look at verse 17 one more time. Jehoshaphat says there, or excuse me, the prophet says there, Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. You can't do anything. See what God does. Which leads to one final takeaway. We are to see Jesus in this event. The better Jehoshaphat. The the one who came and the nations raged against him. But the plan, their plans to destroy him led to their downfall. Jesus defeated his enemies, and you know what? His followers received the spoils of the battle that only he could win. And how does he win this battle? Well, notice what it says in Luke 9. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's how. Our king, Jehovah and judge, the God who took our judgment, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And after this, was taken up on a cross, doing what we could never do, fighting a battle that we could never win, and promises to those who come to him to replace their helplessness with victory. 
and with and their fear with rest. May we see Jesus in 2 Chronicles 20. May we see the gospel and the victory that is ours in Christ. And what is the only proper response to this? We need to worship with loud voices. So would you rise as we go into a time of worship and response of worship to what we realize and remember and are reminded of, of what Jesus has done for us, his victory, our victory, his strength, our strength, his hope, our hope. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll go into this time of response. So now we do. We respond to your word, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this real-life event in a point in time in history, but we also believe and know that these things are recorded for us, for us to learn from, to be reminded of things in and by. And so thank you for the reminder. But now I pray for response. I pray that this would be a sweet time of ministry. I pray that needs would be brought forth. I pray that those who are heaven, heavy laden would find rest in this time. That as they come forward, they'd think in their minds, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm setting my face on Christ. I'm lasered in. I'm locked in, devoted to draw close to Jesus. So I pray, I pray that people would be strengthened, encouraged in this time, that you would be pleased with this time. And when we leave here, we'll be marching out, believing in who you are and the promises to us. So do a work in this time, I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.